there's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Previously on the Mike Wise Show. This is David Stern, and I'm going to be on the Mike Wise podcast on Pure Hoops Media. And say hello to Bruce Bernstein for me. Hey, Bruce. David Stern says hello. But since you worked with Ben Wolfen, who edited this show, you already knew that. Does your ego feel better now? You Bostonian homer. That exchange between Mike Wise and the late NBA commissioner took place when Mike did the final sit-down interview with David Stern in late October of 2019. I am the aforementioned Bruce Bernstein. In this special edition of the Mike Wise Show, we'll hear some of Mike's best exchanges with six members of the Basketball Hall of Fame who have been his guests since this show debuted in January of 2019. But first, Darlene, get us started. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Thanks, Darlene. This is not Mike Wise, although this is the Mike Wise Show. I'm Bruce Bernstein, the Chief Content Officer of Pure Hoops Media. Mike has discussed many issues over the past 18 months, racial issues being one of them. He's had those conversations with many of his guests, and the very first Hall of Famer on the show, Isaiah Thomas, was himself involved in a famous controversy in 1987 when he said that Larry Bird was a very, very good player, but if he had been black instead of white, he'd be just another good guy. While we are more than three decades removed from the controversy, racial issues are still front and center all these years later. Larry Bird has said time and time again, that he knows that wasn't in your heart. You've said, and you look at the clip, it's total Isaiah. You laughing at the time, you're, it's, a, it's a bit of sarcasm that wasn't taken as sarcasm. And, and you basically did a press conference in the NBA Finals about it. I, to, this day, um, to this day, can you say that Larry Bird is not overrated because he's a white player? <laughs> I can't so believe I- people still hold on to that. No, so here, here's what was going on during that period of time that no one wanted to speak to. But now today, you know, 30 years later, it's okay to talk about race, yep. class, gender, stereotypes. And back then in the NBA, females had just been allowed to come into the locker room to cover the sport. And... It was basically all sport was covered by all white men. Yep. And that's not a racist comment. That was an observation that that we were, the Detroit Pistons were making at that time, saying that there needs to be some, you know, that there needs to be some, some, some other cultures, some other races, some other people covering the sport. And believe it or not, during that period of time, by saying that, it was perceived as controversial. 
and and some people in the media were highly offended that you would suggest that an African American should be on the beat covering the sport. <laughs> no, I remember that's what I mean. Brian Burwell, God rest his soul, he was he was he was a pioneer at the time. I mean, shoot, you just didn't have a lot of people of color in the locker rooms. So you think that had something to do with the perception that you got the main think- people, you main people covering it. Or sort of people with, un, you know, I, look, I love a lot of them. Jack McCallum, like they, some of the most, what I would call, liberal, well-intentioned white folks that I've ever met. Although there's some other people that weren't. That's that's just the bottom line. Yeah, and 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 as you said, that's just the bottom line. And and what what we were saying in Detroit, as Detroit Pistons, is that we would like to see some some racial equality in terms of covering the sport, officiating the sport, coaching the sport, and managing the sport. Mm-hmm. And at that time, we were, we were the only team that was really that vocal about it and speaking to it, and that was controversial at that time. Now, now you look back 30 years, and, and guess what? We, we were right. So you mentioned a Brian Burwell who got his start with the Detroit Pistons, covering the beat, then became a columnist, and then move on. Uh, because we were so vocal at that time, the Detroit Pistons, the league basically shut us up, said, okay, we're going to give you uh, female beat writers and columnists and African-American beat writers and columnists. Um, and, you know, when you look at Detroit, it's still that way today where you have a very integrated media team that's covering the sport and that's all we were asking and and for whatever reason you know some some people as you say they they took that as uh controversial but then there were some people in the media such as yourself was like yeah what's wrong with that (laughs) right right and and look look to this day uh if uh i I think Bird said it himself. I know that Billy Hunter, the former executive director of the Players Union, did, and may may have been good 10, 12 years ago that the quote came out, but it was the notion was that if the NBA was ever going to take off, and I mean go back to um, Magic, Bird, Isaiah, Michael, numbers, and have that kind of renaissance again, the thought was, um, and I think Bird said this, but I know that Billy Hunter did, was you had to have an American-born white superstar that ticket go ticket buyers and mass audiences, may, many of whom are mainstream white people, would embrace. Um, I look now and I go, really? Because because this this league is doing as well as it's ever done, and and the players have become bigger than just players. There's they're they're global celebrities. And and to me, the best players are still black. Does that have to? Do you need an American-born white superstar in this day and age to sell the NBA? No, you don't. That's what that's what we were saying. That's what all Detroit Pistons team were saying back then. Mm. Is that because the the league and, and and you know this better than than I do. Um, and again, if you go back to that time period and you look at everything that was written and everything that was being said and the, and the subtle uh, racialization of the language that was being used back then, 
the Lakers and the Celtics, you were really, you were really the the league from a marketing standpoint and everything else was subtly playing the race card to draw people in to see Magic Bird, you know, mm-hmm. or the Celtics Lakers. Definitely. You know, there there was a, I mean, and and that was that was and it was marketed that way in a very subtle way. But it wasn't subtle. It was extremely loud to anyone who who was paying attention. Oh no, no, it was it was the white dudes from Boston versus the brothers from LA. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and 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 we were saying, hey, it don't have to be that way. The game is beautiful enough in itself. Yeah. And when people get together, you know, we can we can move beyond the the racialization of the game and really make it about the game. And we don't necessarily have to use the code language, the code words, and so forth and so on to get people interested. However, no. back then, that's the way it was marketed. I completely agree with you. And, and people, they can say what they want about it, but it's, it's so true. I also, um, I, I, I also remember the times when, the, when times when, guys would, I don't want to say, come out and say something and be ridiculed for it. But if if you were black and you said something controversial, the chances are you'd suffer a lot more than the white dude who did it. And that and that's just the way, as you said, the way it was back then. My, I even talked to Stephen Curry about this a few years ago, where I said, you know, there's a lot of backlash against you. And I said, is it because you're, you're not the, uh, and, and when I say backlash, from a lot of the urban black players in the league that thought, oh, this guy's a, you know, this guy's a player's kid. He didn't, he didn't work for it like I did. And, and, you know, and, and, and he, I even asked him, I go, you think it's part of like the light skin, the other, and he goes, he goes, if I'd be silly, if I didn't think some of that was about it, you know, I, I don't know what the backlash is, is the media loves, uh, either the media loves me too much and they hate them for loving me or, or, you know, they, there's just that feeling. And I look back on it now and I go, Really? Like, like, I just don't, Grant Hill said he got some of this too. Like where if you came from a, from a decent background, it was all of a sudden you, you didn't have the street cred you needed to, to be accepted. And I think that's one of the most ridiculous things in this day and age. Well, now that, again, now that we are, we are in a, we are in an environment where we can have these kind of discussions that you and I are having, which are good. Yeah. Um, now, now we can really critique what was going on during that period of time, and even with a with with a with a with a Grant Hill or a Steph Curry, you know, from a from a from a cultural standpoint. So the the privileged kids, when you're poor. Mm. You always hate the privileged kids because you want what they got. (laughs) While many NBA players come from humble backgrounds like Isaiah Thomas where money was tight, there have also been NBA players who were the children of successful parents. And those privileged players frequently had to overcome misconceptions held about them by their less fortunate opponents to establish their credibility and their toughness on the court. One such player, Hall of Famer Grant Hill. We had some great conversations about race when back in the day it wasn't it almost wasn't nouveau or or uh, I guess accepted to talk about it in such a way. And one of the things I loved that you told me was um, that the backlash that a player like yourself who came from a two parent family, Janet and Calvin Hill, both of whom I met 
obviously, your mother was, uh, people always say, the, the roommate of Hillary Rodham Clinton at Wesley, and she has a great career as an attorney, and, she's, uh, and your father has been an executive, as well as, you know, like you, a rookie of the year in the NFL a long time ago. You had this, what people say, a privileged background. And I talked to Steph Curry about this and at one point, and I said, do you think that's part of the backlash toward you? And he goes, I would be, uh, it'd be stupid not to say it was. And it wasn't so much from other players anymore as it was from, he just became such a media darling that I think people resented it in a way like, oh, this guy can't be all that. And and you told me a story once, I think, you know, was, did I have any street cred when I dunked on Alonzo Mourning? Did I have, you know, and I, and I still remember the story of you a guy giving you grief because he said, "What you don't even need this. You were playing in an all-star game, I think, in high school. And, uh, do, can you share that story? And do you think things have changed because there are so many former uh, – I mean, there's so many players now that had parents that were players. Yeah, I mean, I think it's changed a bit. I mean, I think, you know, I think a lot of things contribute to that. I think it's not just sports. It's society. I think, you know, having, you know, having a black president. You know, who, mm. you know, was 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 a great father, a great husband. Uh, I think he just, you know, I think that image. I think you can look at the influences of music. I mean, look at hip hop and look at you know uh, mm -hmm. the evolution of of some of these artists. Somebody like Jay Z, who, you know, was a was a you know was a, a drug dealer and now is a businessman, is intelligent, well spoken. He's a brand. He's a pop star, you know, in a lot of ways. And you can see their growth and their maturity through the years. And I think that's had a, a huge impact on people's perceptions. Um, now, I mean, going back, I mean, I, you know, I can't speak for Steph Curry or Austin Rivers or Clay Thompson or the countless of Jaron Jackson, who's a young player whose dad played in the NBA. Um, but, you know, back in the day, yeah, I mean, I remember I went to five-star uh, basketball camp in, in the 80s. And, um, you know, we're all sort of, trying to find our way and trying to get a scholarship to go play somewhere <laughs> in college basketball. And I remember there's this guy that was like, yo man, like your family's rich. Like, why are you even doing this? And like, like I got insulted, you know, like, like, yeah. okay. And then I'm gonna go out here and kick your butt on the court, which I did. <laughs> and, and so this idea that. Did he end up in the NBA? No, nah, no. You know, it's like nobody really ever. I mean, I think, I think, Nobody ever came at me sideways in the NBA. Okay. I mean, I didn't. Nobody ever talked trash or at least. No, but that, did that player end up in the NBA? No, no, okay. not at all, not at all. And uh, and so I don't even know where that player went in college. Mm. Um, but this idea that you know you you have to sort of live or be you know a certain way or be brought up a certain way to have uh, a hunger, a thirst, a drive. Uh, to be successful or to to to, to do well um, is foolish, you know. I mean, there's there's I think it's more about the person, you know. It's about who they are and and, and their character and what they put, you know, regardless of how they've come up or grown up or what have you. And uh, and I think the beautiful thing is in the NBA is that you get a little bit of both. You you can see that you can see a diverse sort of mix of of people from all over the world who grew up in different ways, but you know, with their talent, their drive, maybe some genetics. <laughs> um, but all of that combined has, has allowed them to, you know, Kobe Bryant. I mean, Kobe Bryant grew up so-called exactly, And there was nobody in that generation as competitive as Kobe Bryant. So, you know, it, 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 you know it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of dynamic. I think we've sort of moved a little bit past that. 
But, you know, I'm sure Steph has had to endure some things. And you know what? It doesn't seem to really bother him. He's still nope. going out there playing, having fun, and, and being the great player that he is. Hi, right, this is Chris Mullen. You're listening to Mike Wise podcast on Pure Hoops Media. Uh, that's awesome. Molly, I can't thank you enough for all of this time. This was Bruce, just that, that, amazing. That, 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 that's one take, like by, you know, like those quick things you do at ESPN. One take, baby. <laughs> that's what, that, that was unbelievable, yeah. Yeah, Molly, those days were amazing. You know, Chris Mullen and I worked together at ESPN for several years on the NBA projects, doing shows like NBA Tonight and NBA Coast to Coast. And without question, Molly is one of the greatest people in the basketball family and one hell of an analyst. When he joined Mike... They discussed the 1992 Olympic Dream Team and the man we heard at the very top of this show that was the visionary behind it. You were selected to a team that is still and forevermore going to be looked at as the standard in, uh, in an international basketball because it was the first year that pros were allowed. Uh, the Dream Team... I, you know, I know you only started two games, but you were integral in that part. And w- what an experience. I just look, I look back on that and I just say like, wow, what a, like, our, like whatever David Stern was trying to do, it worked because people were buying NBA gear all over the world after that. And any, any, anything that really stands out memory wise. Yeah, so so after shoot, almost going on thirty years, right? So after yep. um, the basketball itself was was dynamic and and phenomenal and fun and, and we dominated and we played together. All all, all the great great uh, things you would say about a basketball team is true. I think what you bring up now is really really amazing is David Stern's genius, right? You talk about genius coaches, genius players and things like mm-hmm. that. What David Stern did, uh, and he knew he was doing it at the time. That's what, that's what always got him. He, I remember him sitting down telling us this, this, what we're doing right now, and this is in the moment, right? It's going to have mm-hmm. a huge impact beyond what you guys can imagine. Um, and what wow. he was talking about was, was bringing that game global, you know, bringing it, bring, bringing the, something that could only be a dream, to reality to these kids over in Europe and all over the world, right? Um, and lo and behold, here we sit here today, a third of the league is foreign-born players. Some of our best players in the league are foreign-born guys, and a lot of them, the first glimpse they got of NBA basketball up close and personal was that dream team. So that was, that was a, a genius um, move by David Stern, very mm. calculated, and, and it came true. And, and I think we all can – Nothing but gratitude and, and thankful for for David Stern and his and his brilliant uh, mind. Yeah, in in so many ways, I still remember the story of the guy, uh, like a little TV guy, foreign journalist from Argentina. His name was Adrian Pienza. You probably met him once or twice. And he comes up to the NBA office, and Stern had just gotten the job, and he said, "Hey, um, you know," Stern says, "I'd like to offer you the TV rights to the NBA." And he told the guy, Adrian Pianza, I'll give them to you for 2000 And so now this guy is like, you know, thinking, that's it, 2000 And he puts these, these highlights on every night on his little Canal 9 channel in Argentina. And who, know, who sees him but seven-year-old Manu Ginobili? <laughs> and, and he stays up late. And instead of like wanting to be, you know, grow up as Messi or Maradona, he wants to be Michael Jordan. He wants to be Chris Mullen. He wants to be 
that next great player in the NBA. And all of a sudden you got guys from all over that probably bought rights for 2000 to the NBA in 1984 or whatever. And this is what it became. I mean, it's just crazy. You're right. David Stern was a genius in so many ways. Yeah, and he really, I thought he thought he was very meticulous and, and very serious about how each and every decision he made was to make the league better, make it more respectable. Um, and he did it to each and every individual player, each organization. Um, and then look, I mean, it's it's the most popular sport. I guess still a little bit behind soccer as far as worldwide, but but it's it keeps gaining ground. And, and I think yeah. it all started with David Stern. David Stern may have passed away on January 1st of 2020, but his legacy will never die. We'll hear from David later in the show, but none other than Hall of Famer Bill Walton points out how perfectly the late commissioner's moral compass was aligned. Improving humanity has always been important to Bill Walton and has long been on the agenda of the leadership at the NBA as well. Under Commissioner Adam Silver and the late David Stern before him, The league has always worked for social justice through NBA Cares and other charitable works. When I interviewed David back in October of 19, I asked him what he was most proud of from his 30 years as commissioner, and his answer came as no surprise. Well, I would say that's at the top of it, the fact that these players are recognized as upstanding members of their communities, the fact that they're charitably inclined when Mm. I see what they've done in their foundations in their day-to-day living they we've there's been a real change uh and it's and it's great one of the great things endless list of great things and we always come back to david stern who to me is the most important man in the history of basketball but david, right, stern, da- david stern he he knew that that basketball yes was a business that he made out of the game but he also knew the social responsibility of business to drive the world to a better place. And when I was privileged to be there at David Stern's funeral at Radio City Music Hall in January, I believe it was. Yep. Yeah, we were, Bruce and I were there too. What an amazing event. I was sitting, I was sitting with uh, Kareem and Oscar Robertson and Earl Monroe and uh gosh i think yao ming was in that row anyway there yeah. was a, we are in the front row there and we just all kept looking at each other because the, the event the celebration of david's life and the memories were not uh, about basketball they were all about the things that he mm-hmm. did credibility integrity inclusiveness wmba and and and, 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 and and saving the world, and it was just yeah. absolutely spectacular. No, and Adam Silver just carried it on. Adam Silver succeeded David Stern as NBA commissioner in 2014, and during David's 30-year reign, he was known as a demanding but fair boss. While at times his motives were questioned by the critics, he always wanted the players to get the credit they deserved. When Mike did that final sit-down interview with David in late 2019, as you're about to hear, they had a great time giving each other some good-natured grief, but they also addressed Adam's preparation for the job, as well as a major source of pride for David. If you ask me what the most, what the thing is that I'm most proud of is that the players of the NBA, when I first got involved, were like in the basement of the Celebrity Pyramid. Oh, and now they're at the tippy tippy top. If they would have showed up at games, 
their own games, people wouldn't have known some of them. Yeah, and so now, and so now they're very well known, and they speak out, and they do all kinds of interesting things, and they are, as a group, very charitably inclined. Why? So we we really, uh, I, I really enjoy watching them, and I actually enjoy watching Adam, my successor, which I think is a is a complete blessing for for a retired so-called CEO. Yeah. Because I'm watching someone who worked with me for 20 years in five different jobs, uh, all reporting to me. And people oh, think You that liked it, that, didn't you? You liked the power. No, I didn't like the power. I, I guess I enjoyed the outcome because all of my colleagues were so talented. And, and actually, people think that it was Dr. King who said free at last. It was actually Adam <laughs> because... He was free at last, and I'm having a ball watching. Free at last when you when you when, left when I, when I turned over the keys after 30 uh, years. Uh, Actually, in some ways, both of us were free. You were free from the madness, yeah. and he was and he was free to become who Adam Silver was always supposed and, to be. And he's doing a great job. The, before I get to the marketing thing, you put me on something that I need to get to. Now comes the meat of the interview, now that I've softened you up with all the family stuff. This is the hard stuff. No, I'm, some of it I'm not going to answer, so go I ahead. understand that. I understand that. But you will be gotten before this is over. You know that, don't you? No. Okay. Uh, I'm just trying. Can you guys hear him okay, by the way? Because he's okay. I'm fine. Right. I have a, two mics. I'm all right, doing all right, great. Okay, so... <laughs> I don't know how to say this, Mike. Go ahead, go ahead. You don't have the intellectual acuity to catch me. Yeah, this is I'm gonna sadly be very nice to you. Sadly, the commissioner is right. Okay, I'm the, <laughs> sadly the commissioner is right. There's no friend like an old friend. Go yeah, ahead, ask uh, the question. So, uh, I uh, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to get speechless, to the, huh? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it was like a standing eight count. The um, the time when uh, when was um, when you first hired Adam? What was he doing? He was an attorney at a leading New York law firm looking about looking at his career options. And okay. he came to talk to me because he was about he was a litigator and he was about at Cravath, Swain and Moore, one of the leading yeah. firms in New York. He was about to consider going to the US attorney's office. That was a career path that is not unusual. Yeah. Go to the US attorney's office for a couple of years as an assistant US attorney and return and become a career litigator. And I said, if you're prepared to, uh, to work that cheaply, you should come to work with me and you'll be my special assistant. So Adam started as my special assistant, then he became the chief of staff, then he became senior vice president of something, and then you put and him into, president, and then he was the president of NBA Entertainment. President of NBA Entertainment, then deputy commissioner. Yeah. And the only thing wrong with all of those five is that they reported to me. <laughs> so he, uh, he, he really, very, well, you learned at your, you learned at your knee. And it he, is, he, it is so rewarding to have a in-house successor who is known to everybody and knows yeah. everybody. So it was a, it's a, it was a seamless Seamless transition, and we had a great time doing it. You heard Mike and David touch on his pride in the NBA players, but early in his tenure with the league, 
David had many challenges in promoting a league that was predominantly African-American and trying to sell it to sports fans that may not have been ready to embrace a league with fewer white stars. You're, uh, you're, you're rising up the ranks. You're seeing things uh, going on. I always thought that it's cliche now, but the NBA was too black and too drug-addled. And I look back at those times, and I don't know if that was as much reality as that's what society thought of it. And, and that it was almost more of a problem of society not accepting the black athlete as much as they do now. Well, but that's something. Uh, I'm very proud that our society was as we projected it would be. We got a group, a small group of us together, and we said, look, guys, we've got the best athletes in the world playing the most exciting game, and we're going to keep saying it until it comes true. And uh, we said it and said it and said it. I was the 24th employee of the NBA, believe it or not. And so I had the opportunity to hire some of the best people in sports in the various functions that they performed, and it was great. And, and yes, people said that because our players averaged $250,000, they were making so much money, that's why... <laughs> They took drugs because you, you know, and then they had af afros uh, were the, yeah. the day, and then came the tattoos, et cetera. But it was kind of interesting. People would say, well, what do you think about these gold chains and all these things like that, Stern? I said, you mean the elderly Jewish men in Miami? Or, you know, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> so you have to, if you didn't have a sense of humor, you couldn't yeah. get through it because... We were pounded. We were really pounded. There was a push and pull, I think, uh, about, and it's still going on in some ways, but I think most of it has been eliminated over time, is how, how authentic is someone allowed to be? And I remember this, um, and I'll use two real quick examples. One was there was a time when, you know, either Michigan or somebody else ushered in the era of shorts that looked like tents, and they, they were down your knees, and, and you put in a rule that you, you, people were measuring shorts in the locker room, and everybody at the time was like, David Stern's turning into a, a, a dictator, and, and, and he's not no. letting uh, especially African-American players be who they are. And then, let me give you the, uh, the, the contradiction here and the, and the thing that would turn it around. Your own Hoop magazine, the in-house magazine, has a cover story of Allen Iverson and Allen Iverson is tatted up, and he got someone airbrushed their, his yeah. tattoos, and you were furious. You thought that Allen Iverson should be portrayed as he is, right? And so, where could you talk about that push and no, pull I, and, I as a commissioner, and how you don't want to alienate your customer base, but you also want to let these people be who they are, irrespective of white, black, whatever? No one ever asked me about that, and I was crazed on the subject of Allen Iverson's. Tattoos being, uh, it wasn't inauthentic. There's a yeah. uh, tattoos being, you know, so-called whited out, so to speak. Yeah, uh, that was terrible. Um, did you did you fire the guy or did you no, tell, just tell him no, to reprimand him? No, no. We say we're gonna, you got to keep at it until you get it right. That was the penalty, was to uh, suffer me for a longer period of time. But <laughs> but actually. I don't find those to be at opposite ends of the spectrum, actually. You need certain 
rules. It's the obligation of the commissioner yeah. to have rules. Uh, you know, we don't let players play in long pants. They have to wear what's prescribed. And so we be, you know, and, and when we began sort of shortening the shorts, so to speak, they ordered bigger sizes. It was a game that was being yeah. played. And, uh, you know, I, it just looked silly to me as it happened. I don't think you had to be in John Stockton short shorts. John Stockton's short shorts may be a thing of the past, but he wore them well as a member of the Dream Team and during a 19-year Hall of Fame career with the Jazz. UCLA's hoop dynasty has produced many Hall of Famers, led by coach John Wooden. When Bill Walton joined Mike on the show, he described his complex yet loving relationship with his famously conservative mentor during their time together in Westwood and for many years after. We tried with everything we had to get him to acknowledge that we were doing something right. And the most we ever got, most ever, was maybe a twinkle in his eye or maybe he turned one side of his mouth, the lip of his mouth up and a little bit of a half a smile. But then as soon as, as, soon as he caught himself beaming and uh, glowing in, in, you know, in the golden light of what we were doing, then he would just say, okay, that's okay. Yeah. Now let's do it again, but do it faster, do it faster, do it faster. And I've seen it once. That means I never wanted to go below this level of execution mm. and perfection again the rest of your lives. And he was, uh, he was, uh, I, I was, I was so lucky to, yeah. to have 43 years of my life with him. I, I had oh, no idea. Yeah, I had your no relationship idea with had, him was a great no story. I had the first seven years of those 43 years, but, and then over the last 36 years, which were by far the most interesting, once I stopped playing for him, when well, he I, became, when he became your friend, uh, or, or I don't know, I don't know if he was my friend, but I was his friend. <laughs> well, I think he, he always called you William, and I love that. And I still go back to that time you drove, you bicycled into practice and told them you, you decided to assert your independence and said you were going to have facial hair. Tell people, I love that story because it says everything about the times, but also about what kind of man Coach Wooden was. I argued with him about everything. You name the subject, I argued with him. <laughs> and he would sit there and he would listen. And I've got this beautiful black and white artist rendition of, uh, in, in pencil of Coach Wooden in, in my gym here at the home garage. And this, Lori and I have lived here for 41 years now. This is my dream. Coach Wooden has been here, and Bill Russell and Kareem and Jerry and all, a lot of guys have been here. And most importantly, Lori's still here. She came back. And so the. Mike Wise hasn't been there, but that's okay. Don't worry. So you haven't been here? Has Bruce, Not yet. Bruce has been here. Has Bruce Bernstein been here? Bruce, how, 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 how's Nancy and Mitchell doing? They doing okay? Hey, hey Bill. Uh, Nancy, Nancy and Mitchell are doing great. Uh, Mitchell's engaged. He's going to be getting married in uh, May of 2021. His wedding had to be postponed. Um, yeah, congratulations. Way to go, Dad. And his, uh, and his little brother, Adam, is working for the NBA. Yep. So, uh, oh, nice. Nice. Went into the family business. Yep. No, we're great. Yep. And I have been in your house. And I remember being in your house in 2011, right? And John and John Walsh's daughter and her husband were there the same day, and your chef, yep. and your chef prepared an amazing feast for us. And your house is truly like a hall of fame. It was uh, it's a national yeah. treasure. Yeah. It's a hall of fame because you were here. 
And so anyway, I would have all these. Thank you, Bruce, for the update there. And uh, we have a son working. Oh, when Phil just takes over the podcast. Yeah, and and so we have this uh, uh, relationship where I argued with Wooden about everything, and he would he would listen, and he would he'd love to hold his his index finger over his pursed closed lips, and uh, parsed lips, excuse me, and he would uh, he would listen like. like the librarian, uh, you were trying to explain why you were making so much noise in his library, right? And so <laughs> anyway, he would finally have enough of my whining and complaining and excuses. And he would just roll his eyes and wave his hand and say, you know, Bill, it's all fine and good that you think this way, but I'm the coach here. And while we've enjoyed having you, we're going to miss you. And as soon as he said that, and he said it quite often, that uh, I knew I had lost. I never changed his mind. I never, I, I, I never got him to see things my way. But I, I, I never stopped trying. At the start of this show, Mike referred to me as a Boston homer, which is totally unfair or, you know, whatever. One of my boyhood idols was Hall of Famer Dave Cowens of the Celtics. Along with John Havlicek, Cowens and Hondo followed the Bill Russell dynasty of 11 titles in 13 years and they won two of their own in 1974 and 76. And when Cowens was at the end of his career, he spent one season as a teammate of the next great Celtic legend. You also played with Larry Bird uh, for one season, and the Celtics uh, people know that, and I'm sure a lot of basketball people do, but I don't think the casual fan knows. What would you think of the hick from French Lick showing up at his first training camp? Oh, he was prepared. The guy, he was... um... Uh, loved to practice, stayed in shape, you know, was, um, uh, he just was a heck of a player. You could tell he had those types of instincts and skills that a lot of people really don't possess, um, especially at an early age. You know, he was, you know, one year older coming out of school, so he had a little bit of that maturity to help him make the transition from college to the pros. But, you know, he didn't have to worry about, um, you know, the, the added – um, media uh, scrutiny and, mm. and all the attention because he certainly had that when he was at Indiana State, you know, especially when they went, when they went all the way to the finals of the NCAA. Yeah. So um, he he was used to that and performing under the big lights. Was was there anything that right after the right after he got there where you said, "Oh, this guy's going to be special. This guy's going to be real special." Well, you know, you just let things sort of happen on their own at their own time. And, uh, yeah. but, but, you know, the guy, um, you could tell right away, he was a great shooter and, um, he wasn't, he, you know, you wouldn't say Larry Bird was fast, but he was quick. He made quick decisions. You know, he was, he was, he had things going on in his mind and his vision about, you know, how the game should be played, um, uh, where everybody was on the floor and he was very confident with the basketball more so than most guys, his size at that time. So he was a little bit of a, a unique fella, but he, you know, he's about six, nine. He and I are about the same size. Um, yep. but, uh, he could play out on the floor. He had, he had a post-up game. So he had a um, very fundamentally sound guy, uh, but yet had that uh, special, those special um, gifts, um, you know, uh, in terms of vision and smart guy, knew what was going on and had the right attitude because he worked hard. He didn't take anything for granted. You know, Isaiah Thomas wasn't the only person to notice that Larry Bird was white. 
In fact, some of the great Caucasian players who came after Bird were oftentimes compared to him. One of those players was Chris Mullen, who entered the Hall of Fame in 2011. Mully not only played against Bird, he also played three seasons for Larry when he was coaching the Pacers between 1998 and 2000. I don't know if you got this at all. I mean, I'm sure like people tried to make more of it than it was because, as you know, if you could play, you could play. But like people were like, oh, Molly, Molly, the great white hope after Bird. Uh, like like you, you that was a stigma. I mean, that was a stigma, whether you you took pride in it or not. People wanted to say like and that went for everybody, by the way, in my little sorry, you know, one year college basketball career for Hawaii Pacific, like. I literally would go to the, the, the sub-base gym and all the brothers, you know, like they, the respect level was like, oh, it's Bird. I'm like, oh, I'm 16. They're calling me Bird. I love this. Like yeah. at some point, like was that was that a was that a point of pride for you or was like, you know what, fellas, I'm white, but I can play. Like w- where do you come down on that? Yeah, I mean, growing up in New York, it was really, you know, um, it was about season the day, play good that day or don't come back. So that, that yep. was the pressure itself. Not really, you know, look, there was some great, great players that, you know, there's always great players that, that people, they can look at you and compare you to. But I never really felt that. I just, I, I tried to emulate Larry Bird. I loved his game. I loved Magic, John Havlicek, Wolf Frazier, I, Pistol Pete Maravich. I think these were players that I just loved and I tried to emulate them. You know, I thought they were great players and, I could take something from the game, I would try and do it. Uh, but playing for Larry was awesome. Larry was just as a player, you know, no bullshit, straight up, tell you like it is. Um, he didn't do anything he didn't like to do, which I love. You know, he didn't he didn't like to, you know, as a player, watch, you know, just watch film for, for the sake of watching it. You know what I mean? He would scale it down to the stuff he felt we needed. Practice was all business. He was really into preparing and then going out there and playing and bringing bring your A game. You know, not a lot of room beyond time. Be prepared, play hard, play together, boom. And, and it sounds simple, but that's what he did. And he didn't, yeah. he didn't make much more of it than that. And just like a play, he kept it simple. One white player who was not compared to Bird? Bill Walton. Bill entered the league five seasons before Larry but they ended up as teammates when the Celtics president, Red Auerbach, traded for Bill in 1985. Bill Walton's last productive season as a player saw him win sixth man of the year for a Celtics team that Bird led to the 1986 NBA championship. I look at that team as the, the greatest ever. Your thoughts? I've been lucky. I've okay. been lucky to be, to be on three of the greatest teams ever. And, yeah. and and that doesn't even count Helix High School or my elementary school team. And so UCLA, the UCLA, the Blazers, Blazers, who would have been a dynasty without injuries, I believe. And then, uh, and the Celtic team, like it, like any great team, uh, we could win in any number of ways. Yeah. We could win any type of game against any opponent, and we we had everything. And well. We can talk about the brilliance of Robert Parrish, the chief, and just fantastic. We can talk about the dynamic contributions of Dennis Johnson and Danny Ainge and the incredible bench of Scott Wedman and Rick Carlisle and Jerry Seesting and Greg Kite yeah. and David Burkill and Sam Vincent. At the yeah. end of the day, we had Larry Bird, we had Kevin McHale, we had Red Auerbach, and nobody else did. Mm-hmm. And we were... It was super fun. The Celtics, the Celtics, the year. 
that year. That, that I just that means I told Larry and Kevin what the schedule was. And I didn't really have to come to Kevin too much because uh, <laughs> Larry, that guy, he delivered. He was just uh-huh. absolutely brilliant. And well, I still and, love. Him. I, I still and love I forgot him. to mention our coach. I forgot to mention our coach, uh, Casey Jones, who was classically oh. brilliant in every way, and we loved Casey Jones and what he was able to do for us. It was just absolutely spectacular. You can yeah. empty the thesaurus uh, on, on Casey Jones. He's just absolutely oh, one of those remarkable human beings and forces of nature. And uh, and to learn about Casey Jones and to to know his story and to know what he did and become. I mean, it, it's just absolutely uh, inspirational and wonderful. And I'm the luckiest guy in the world. The 1986 Celtics were the third and final championship team of the Larry Bird era in Boston. It was also Bill's final productive season as a player. But the following season, despite more injury problems, Bill was still on the team and was on the playoff roster when Bird made one of the greatest and most clutch defensive plays in Celtics history. Here's how legendary Celtics play-by-play man Johnny Most described it. Now that's a steal by Bird. The people still remember your reaction on the bench. The TV cameras caught uh, w- during the 87 playoffs when uh, in game six, or was it five, uh, Larry steals the pass, throw, falling out of bounds, throws it to DJ. He scores. You, what, was you, what were you thinking in that moment? I just remember you looking and like, oh, my gosh, you, you, you're in disbelief. But, but you, I don't know. What, what were you thinking in that moment? I was thinking the poor Detroit Pistons, they have no idea how good Larry Bird is. <laughs> That's good. Because, because you, whenever there's true brilliance, you know, it, it's one thing to be yeah. brilliant in a highlight film, but when you're brilliant all the time and the radiant glory of Larry Bird on a constant basis, that guy, when you see someone, every single day able to deliver and to bring it and to carry the burden and to ease the pain and to and to be that leader to be the guy who who accepts the responsibility and, uh, and addresses everything on a constant basis that was larry bird and i was just super lucky to be able to be on the team super lucky to be a witness to some of the greatest accomplishments mm-hmm. in the history of the world that was dope <laughs> Uh, Yeah, it was Darlene. (laughs) Thanks to Mike Wise for allowing me to fill in for him during his much-needed break. Thanks also to our editor, Ben Wolfen. And thanks to all of the Hall of Famers who have been guests on the Mike Wise Show. As we heard, David Stern was a major presence in this show, and we'll never forget this great man who meant so much to our sport. Please check out all of our Pure Hoops Media shows. Mike Wise is back every Monday. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams every Tuesday is a tremendous college hoop show with amazing guests. Catch and Shoot 2.0 drops each Wednesday with Otto Strong and Aaron Berlin. Thursday, it's Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt and King McClure. And finally on Friday, BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman have the Pure Hoops podcast. Please rate us and review us, and please stay vigilant as we continue battling the COVID-19 pandemic. Wear your mask, continue to social distance, and treat each other, even strangers, like cherished teammates. We are 
in this together. And please, keep working for social justice and a more inclusive society. For Mike Wise, this is Bruce Bernstein. See you next week. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.